Section 12 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 12, Chapter 13, Part 4. The exorbitant estates conferred by the Norman on his barons and chieftains remained not long entire and unimpaired. The landed property was gradually shared out into more hands, and those immense baronies were divided either by provisions to younger children by partitions among co-heirs, by sale, or by escheating to the king, who gratified a great number of his courtiers by dealing them out among them in smaller portions. Such moderate estates, as they required economy and confined the proprietors to live at home, were better calculated for duration, and the order of knights and small barons grew daily more numerous and began to form a very respectable rank or order in the state. As they were all immediate vassals of the crown by military tenure, they were, by the principles of feudal law, equally entitled with the greatest barons to a seat in the national or general councils, and this right, though regarded as a privilege which the owners could not entirely relinquish, was also considered as a burden which they desired to be subjected to on extraordinary occasions only. Hence it was provided in the charter of King John that, while the great barons were summoned to the national council by a particular writ, the small barons, under which appellation the knights were also comprehended, should only be called by a general summons of the sheriff. The distinction between great and small barons, like that between rich and poor, was not exactly defined, but, agreeably to the inaccurate genius of that age, and to the simplicity of ancient government, was left very much to be determined by the discretion of the king and his ministers. It was usual for a prince to require, by a particular summons, the attendance of a baron in one parliament, and to neglect him in future parliaments. Nor was this uncertainty ever complained of as an injury. He attended when required. He was better pleased on other occasions to be exempted from the burden, and as he was acknowledged to be of the same order with the greatest barons, it gave them no surprise to see him take his seat in the great council, whether he appeared of his own accord or by a particular summons from the king. The barons by writ, therefore, began gradually to intermix themselves with the barons by tenure. And as Camden tells us, from an ancient manuscript now lost, that after the Battle of Evesham, a positive law was enacted, prohibiting every baron from appearing in Parliament, who was not invited thither by a particular summons. The whole baronage of England held thenceforward their seat by writ, and this important privilege of their tenures was in effect abolished. Only where writs had been regularly continued for some time in one great family, the omission of them would have been regarded as an affront, and even as an injury. A like alteration gradually took place in the order of earls who were the highest rank of barons. The dignity of an earl, 
like that of a baron, was anciently territorial and official. He exercised jurisdiction within his county. He levied one-third of the fines to his own profit. He was at once a civil and a military magistrate, and though his authority, from the time of the Norman conquest, was hereditary in England, the title was so much connected with the office that, where the king intended to create a new earl, he had no other expedient than to erect a certain territory into a county or earldom, and to bestow it upon the person and his family. But as the sheriffs, who were the vice-regents of the earls, were named by the king, and removable at pleasure, he found them more dependent upon him, and endeavoured to throw the whole authority and jurisdiction of the office into their hands. This magistrate was at the head of the finances, and levied all the king's rents within the county. He assessed at pleasure the talliages of the inhabitants in royal domain. He had usually committed to him the management of wards, and often of escheats. He presided in the lower courts of judicature, and thus, though inferior to the earl in dignity, he was soon considered, by this union of the judicial and fiscal powers, and by the confidence reposed in him by the king, as much superior to him in authority, and undermined his influence within his own jurisdiction. It became usual, in creating an earl, to give him a fixed salary, commonly about twenty pounds a year, in lieu of his third of the fines. The diminution of his power kept pace with the retrenchment of his profit, and the dignity of earl, instead of being territorial and official, dwindled into personal and titular. Such were the mighty alterations which already had fully taken place, or were gradually advancing, in the House of Peers, that is, in the Parliament for there seems anciently to have been no other house. But though the introduction of barons by writ, and of titular earls, had given some increase to royal authority, there were other causes which counterbalanced those innovations, and tended in a higher degree to diminish the power of the sovereign. The disuse into which the feudal militia had in a great measure fallen, made the barons almost entirely forget their dependence on the crown. By the diminution of the number of knights' fees, the king had no reasonable compensation when he levied scutages, and exchanged their service for money. The alienations of the crown lands had reduced him to poverty, and above all, the concession of the great charter had set bounds to royal power, and had rendered it more difficult and dangerous for the prince to exert any extraordinary act of arbitrary authority. In this situation, it was natural for the king to court the friendship of the lesser barons and knights, whose influence was no ways dangerous to him, and who, being exposed to oppression from their powerful neighbours, sought a legal protection under the shadow of the throne. He desired, therefore, to have their presence in Parliament, where they served to control the turbulent resolutions of the great. To exact a regular attendance of the whole body would have produced confusion, and would have imposed too heavy a burden upon them. To summon only a few by writ, though it was practised and had a good effect, served not entirely the king's purpose, because these members had no further authority than intended their personal character, 
and were eclipsed by the appearance of the more powerful nobility. He therefore dispensed with the attendance of most of the lesser barons in Parliament, and in return for this indulgence, for such it was then esteemed, required them to choose in each county a certain number of their own body, whose charges they bore, and who, having gained the confidence, carried with them, of course, the authority of the whole order. This expedient had been practised at different times in the reign of Henry the Third, and regularly during that of the present king. The numbers sent up by each county varied at the will of the prince. They took their seat among the other peers, because by their tenure they belonged to that order. The introducing of them into that house scarcely appeared an innovation, and though it was easily in the king's power, by varying their number, to command the resolutions of the whole parliament, this circumstance was little attended to in an age when force was more prevalent than laws, and when a resolution, though taken by the majority of a legal assembly, could not be executed if it opposed the will of the more powerful minority. But there were other important consequences, which followed the diminution and consequent disuse of the ancient feudal militia. The king's expense in levying and maintaining a military force for every enterprise was increased beyond what his narrow revenues were able to bear, as the scutages of his military tenants, which were accepted in lieu of their personal service, had fallen to nothing. There were no means of supply but from voluntary aids granted him by the Parliament and clergy, or from the talliages which he might levy upon the towns and inhabitants in royal domain. In the preceding year, Edward had been obliged to exact no less than the sixth of all movables from the laity, and a moiety of all ecclesiastical benefices for his expedition into Poictou, and the suppression of the Welsh. And this distressful situation, which was very likely often to return upon him and his successors, made him think of a new device, and summoned the representatives of all the boroughs to Parliament. This period, which is the twenty-third of his reign, seems to be the real and true epoch of the House of Commons, and the faint dawn of popular government in England, for the representatives of the counties were only deputies from the smaller barons and lesser nobility, and the former president of representatives from the boroughs, who were summoned by the Earl of Leicester, was regarded as the act of a violent usurpation, had been discontinued in all the subsequent parliaments, and if such a measure had not become necessary on other accounts, the precedent was more likely to blast than give credit to it. During the course of several years, the kings of England, in imitation of other European princes, had embraced the salutary policy of encouraging and protecting the lower and more industrious orders of the state, whom they found well disposed to obey the laws and civil magistrate, and whose ingenuity and labour furnished commodities requisite for the ornament of peace and support of war. Though the inhabitants of the country were still left at the disposal of their imperious lords, many attempts were made to give more security and liberty to citizens, and make them enjoy unmolested the fruits of their industry. Boroughs were erected by royal patent within the domain lands. Liberty of trade was conferred upon them. The inhabitants were allowed to farm, at a fixed rent, their own tolls and customs. They were permitted to elect their own magistrates. 
justice was administered to them by these magistrates without obliging them to attend the sheriff or county court and some shadow of independence by means of these equitable privileges was gradually acquired by the people the king however retained still the power of levying talliage or taxes upon them at pleasure and though their poverty and the customs of the age made these demands neither frequent or exorbitant such unlimited authority in the sovereign was a sensible check upon commerce and was utterly incompatible with all the principles of a free government but when the multiplied necessities of the crown produced a greater avidity for supply the king whose prerogative entitled him to exact it found that he had not power sufficient to enforce his edicts and that it was necessary before he imposed taxes to smooth the way for his demand and to obtain the previous consent of the boroughs by solicitations remonstrances and authority the inconvenience of transacting this business with every particular borough was soon felt and edward became sensible that the most expeditious way of obtaining supply was to assemble the deputies of all the boroughs to lay before them the necessities of the state to discuss the matter in their presence and to require their consent to the demands of their sovereign for this reason he issued writs to the sheriffs enjoining them to send to parliament along with two knights of the shire two deputies from each borough within their county and these provided with sufficient powers from their community to consent in their name to what he and his council should require of them as it is a most equitable rule says he in his preamble to this writ that what concerns all should be approved of by all and common dangers be repelled by united efforts a noble principle which may seem to indicate a liberal mind in the king and which laid the foundation of a free and equitable government after the election of these deputies by the aldermen and common council they gave sureties for their attendance before the king and parliament their charges were respectively borne by the borough which sent them and they had so little idea of appearing as legislators a character extremely wide of their low rank and condition that no intelligence could be more disagreeable to any borough than to find that they must elect or to any individual than that he was elected to a trust from which no profit or honour could possibly be derived they composed not properly speaking any essential part of the parliament they sat apart both from the barons and knights who disdained to mix with such mean personages after they had given their consent to the taxes required of them their business being then finished they separated even though the parliament still continued to sit and to canvass the national business and as they all consisted of men who were real burgesses of the place from which they were sent the sheriff when he found no person of abilities or wealth sufficient for the office often used the freedom of omitting particular boroughs in his returns and as he received the thanks of the people for this indulgence he gave no displeasure to the court who levied on all the boroughs without distinction the tax agreed to by the majority of deputies the union however of the representatives from the boroughs gave gradually more weight to the whole order and it became customary for them in return for the supplies which they granted to prefer petitions 
to the crown for the redress of any particular grievance of which they found reason to complain. The more the king's demands multiplied, the faster these petitions increased both in number and authority, and the prince found it difficult to refuse men whose grants had supported his throne, and to whose assistance he might as soon be again obliged to have recourse. The commons, however, were still much below the rank of legislators. Their petitions, though they received a verbal assent from the throne, were only the rudiments of laws. The judges were afterwards entrusted with the power of putting them into form, and the king, by adding to them the sanction of his authority, and that sometimes without the assent of the nobles, bestowed validity upon them. The age did not refine so much as to perceive the danger of these irregularities. No man was displeased that the sovereign, at the desire of any class of men, should issue an order which appeared only to concern that class. And his predecessors were so near possessing the whole legislative power, that he gave no disgust by assuming it in this seemingly inoffensive manner. But time and further experience gradually opened men's eyes, and corrected these abuses. It was found that no laws could be fixed for one order of men without affecting the whole, and that the force and efficacy of laws depended entirely on the terms employed in wording them. The House of Peers, therefore, the most powerful order in the state, with reason, expected that their assent should be expressly granted to all public ordinances. But no durable or general statute seems ever to have been made by the king from the petition of the commons alone, without the assent of the peers. It is more likely that the peers alone, without the commons, would enact statutes, and in the reign of Henry V, the commons required that no laws should be framed merely upon their petitions, unless the statutes were worded by themselves, and had passed their house in the form of a bill. But as the same causes which had produced a partition of property continued still to operate, the number of knights and lesser barons, or what the English call the gentry, perpetually increased, and they sunk into a rank still more inferior to the great nobility. The equality of tenure was lost in the great inferiority of power and property, and the House of Representatives from the counties was gradually separated from that of the peers, and formed a distinct order in the state. The growth of commerce, meanwhile, augmented the private wealth and consideration of the burgesses. The frequent demands of the crown increased their public importance, and as they resembled the knights of the shires in one material circumstance, that of representing particular bodies of men, it no longer appeared unsuitable to unite them together in the same house, and to confound their rights and privileges. Thus the third estate, that of the commons, reached at last its present form, and as the country gentlemen made thenceforwards no scruple of appearing as deputies from the boroughs, the distinction between the members was entirely lost, and the lower house acquired thence a great accession of weight and importance in the kingdom. Still, however, the office of this estate was very different from that which it has since exercised with so much advantage to the public. Instead of checking and controlling the authority of the king, they were naturally induced to adhere to him, as the great fountain of law and justice, 
and to support him against the power of the aristocracy, which at once was the source of oppression to themselves, and disturbed him in the execution of the laws. The king, in his turn, gave countenance to an order of men so useful and so little dangerous. The peers also were obliged to pay them some consideration, and by this means the third estate, formerly so abject in England as well as in all other European nations, rose by slow degrees to their present importance, and in their progress made arts and commerce, the necessary attendants of liberty and equality, flourish in the kingdom. What sufficiently proves that the commencement of the House of Burgesses, who are the true commons, was not an affair of chance, but arose from the necessities of the present situation, is that Edward, at the very same time, summoned deputies from the inferior clergy, the first that ever met in England, and he required them to impose taxes on their constituents for the public service. Formerly, the ecclesiastical benefices bore no part of the burdens of the state. The Pope, indeed, of late, had often levied impositions upon them. He had sometimes granted this power to the sovereign. The king himself had, in the preceding year, exacted, by menaces and violence, a very grievous tax of half the revenues of the clergy. But as this precedent was dangerous, and could not easily be repeated in a government which required the consent of the subject to any extraordinary resolution, Edward found it more prudent to assemble a lower house of convocation, to lay before them his necessities, and to ask some supply. But on this occasion he met with difficulties. Whether the clergy thought themselves the most independent body in the kingdom, or were disgusted by the former exorbitant impositions, they absolutely refused their assent to the king's demand of a fifth of their movables. And it was not till a second meeting that, on their persisting in this refusal, he was willing to accept of a tenth. The barons and knights granted him, without hesitation, an eleventh, the burgesses a seventh. But the clergy still scrupled to meet on the king's writ, lest by such an instance of obedience they should seem to acknowledge the authority of the temporal power. And this compromise was at last fallen upon, that the king should issue his writ to the archbishop, and that the archbishop should, in consequence of it, summon the clergy, who, as they then appeared to obey their spiritual superior, no longer hesitated to meet in convocation. This expedient, however, was the cause why the ecclesiastics were separated into two houses of convocation, under their several archbishops, and formed not one estate, as in the countries of Europe, which was at first the king's intention. We now return to the course of our narration. Edward, conscious of the reasons of disgust which he had given to the king of Scots, informed of the dispositions of that people, and expecting the most violent effects of their resentment, which he knew he had so well merited, employed the supplies granted him by his people in making preparations against the hostilities of his northern neighbour. When in this situation he received intelligence of the treaty secretly concluded between John and Philip, and though uneasy at this concurrence of a French and Scottish war, he resolved not to encourage his enemies by a pusillanimous behaviour, or by yielding to their united efforts. He summoned John to perform the duty of a vassal, and to send him a supply of forces against an invasion from France, with which he was then threatened. 
he next required that the fortresses of Berwick, Jedburgh, and Roxburgh should be put into his hands as a security during the war. He cited John to appear in an English Parliament to be held at Newcastle, and when none of these successive demands were complied with, he marched northward with numerous forces, thirty thousand foot and four thousand horse, to chastise his rebellious vassal. The Scottish nation, who had little reliance on the vigour and abilities of their prince, assigned him a council of twelve noblemen, in whose hands the sovereignty was really lodged, and who put the country in the best posture of which the present distractions would admit. A great army, composed of forty thousand infantry, though supported only by five hundred cavalry, advanced to the frontiers, and after a fruitless attempt upon Carlisle, marched eastwards to defend those provinces which Edward was preparing to attack. But some of the most considerable of the Scottish nobles, Robert Bruce, the father and son, the earls of March and Angus, prognosticating the ruin of their country from the concurrence of intestine divisions and a foreign invasion, endeavoured here to ingratiate themselves with Edward by an early submission. And the king, encouraged by this favourable incident, led his army into the enemy's country, and crossed the Tweed without opposition at Coldstream. He then received a message from John, by which that prince, having now procured for himself and his nation Pope Celestine's dispensation from former oaths, renounced the homage which had been done to England, and set Edward at defiance. This bravado was but ill-supported by the military operations of the Scots. End of section 12, chapter 13, part 4.